0: I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, companies are testing you, whether you know it or not.
1: Humana, Chrysler, United Airlines, uh, a whole lot of firms are, are constantly tweaking and experimenting. One expert says that every pixel on the Amazon homepage has had to justify its existence through a randomized trial.
0: Then you've heard of Charles Darwin, but how about Alfred Russell Wallace?
2: This letter from over in Asia by a man with no scientific qualifications whatsoever produced the same theories, absolutely shattering.
0: Plus, meetings may make you less productive, even before they start.
3: When I have something coming up that's looming and has this sort of concrete time, I start to actually feel less capable of tackling tasks, even in the exact same amount of time.
0: That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In the 1760s, a surgeon decided to do an experiment on himself. It started out with a bread and water diet, and then one by one, he introduced more foods, olive oil, milk, beef. He was trying to figure out how to cure a particular illness, but he wasn't working quickly enough. Several weeks after the experiment started, he got the illness that he'd been trying to prevent, scurvy. But even though he was sick, He kept working, and he did have time to turn things around. One by one, he added in more foods—figs, bacon, cheese, butter—to see if one of them would cure the scurvy. The surgeon died at age 29 after seven months of this experiment. He had not yet introduced the foods that would have saved him—citrus fruits. Unfortunately for the surgeon, a paper had actually been published a few years before arguing that citrus— could cure scurvy. The man who had come up with that idea was also a surgeon, and he had used a technique that was not properly appreciated at the time randomized trials, which would turn out to change the world. The surgeon who had uncovered the cure for scurvy had tested potential remedies on sailors, and citrus was like a miracle. Randomized trials, of course, have grown in importance, uncovering hidden facts in everything from medicine to politics. These facts are often not well understood, but they've got a lot to teach us about how we can do things better. Andrew Lee is the author of the new book, Randomistas. He's also a member of the Australian Parliament. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Kara. Great to be with you. So let's just talk... Uh, for a second here, since I started talking about it, about scurvy. I did not realize how incredibly deadly scurvy was. Um, You wrote that if you were a British sailor in the Seven Years' War, which is in the middle of the 1700s, you had about a 1% chance of dying in combat and a more than 70% chance of dying from scurvy. That is incredible.
1: It's extraordinary, isn't it? So, you've got this figure that about two million sailors died from scurvy. Wow. uh, More than from skirmishes, storms, and shipwrecks combined. Hmm. And one of the reasons that they used to press gang uh, unwilling uh, sailors onto ships was because they knew at the start of the voyage that not everyone was going to come home. Right. That they would need to be overmanned at the start of the journey uh, because of the ravages that scurvy would exact on the crew. Uh, it's such a brutal disease. And and the way in which it inflicted its harm upon those who contracted it, this tale that uh, one of the, uh, the uh, sailors had about how his old battle wounds, which had healed decades earlier, began to open up as, as scurvy ate away at the connective tissue. Mm.
0: And so talk about this surgeon who, in fact, the one who originally wrote this paper saying... Um, I've done some studies here and I'm pretty sure it's citrus, it's lemons, it's limes that helps people either not get scurvy or recover from scurvy. Talk about how we figured that out and why for a long time people like did not listen to this guy.
1: So James Lynn's a remarkable guy. Uh, he's a, a 31-year-old uh, ship surgeon on uh, HMS Salisbury and he just tries a simple experiment. He takes 12 sailors afflicted by scurvy uh, and uh, splits them into uh, six groups of pairs, uh, and then tries different treatments on each pair. Uh, so one group gets cider, one group gets vinegar, one group gets sulfuric acid, one group gets seawater. These are all theories that had been proposed to tackle scurvy, uh, and one group get oranges and lemons. Mm-hmm. Uh, not surprisingly, the group that uh, the pair that got oranges and lemons are back on duty within a week. Uh, the uh, folks who got uh, sulfuric acid and seawater are uh, languishing just as badly uh, a week later.
0: And I should say, sulfuric acid was the Preferred treatment that the British Navy gave people, (laughs) right? For scurvy. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, these
1: things sound crazy, but uh, they really had no idea how to deal with this atrocious disease. He takes uh, six years to write it up. It's 456 pages. And the problem with what Lynn does, Kara, is that he has this beautifully constructed randomised trial for working out exactly which treatments work. Uh, but then he really doesn't have any idea as to why oranges and lemons work, so he makes up hocus-pocus around it. Hmm. Uh, and respectable scientists can tell that his... Uh, Description of wirenages and lemons work uh, is essentially garbage, and so they discard his uh, beautiful randomised trial.
0: Mm-hmm. How would you define a randomised trial? What is it? What do you need to sort of put one together if you were going to do it? What are the essential ingredients? So essentially, you
1: just need to assign the treatment based on luck. Uh, It could be the toss of a coin, could be randomised numbers and an Excel generator, could be drawing uh, numbers out of a hat. Uh, But the key is that you want to know what the world would look like uh, if you didn't put in place that intervention. So suppose we want to know whether or not uh, uh, getting an extra hour's sleep makes you happier. Uh, We might uh, ask 100 of your listeners to toss a coin. Heads, we ask you to sleep for an extra hour tonight. Uh, Tails, you just get your regular night's sleep and then we survey everyone about their happiness. Mm -hmm. And if we found that people for whom the coin came up heads were happier tomorrow, we might conclude that sleep uh, has a positive effect on happiness. And what's clever about that is it gets around the possibility of reverse causation, Uh, that maybe if we just looked at the simple correlation between sleep and happiness, uh, it might be that happier people were going to bed earlier. The randomised trial lets us get a true causal effect.
0: Yeah. And you talk about this in terms of like there's this classic example of that um, there's more uh, shark attacks when uh, people eat more ice cream. Uh, Precisely. But in fact, there's no relationship between those two things. It's just that they both happen during the summertime. But you could wrongly infer that, like, you know, if you eat dairy, sharks will attack you.
1: Exactly. Or you might conclude that if you eat lots and lots of chocolate, then you're more likely to win a Nobel Prize, given that countries with high chocolate consumption also have higher numbers of Nobel Prizes. Uh, Entirely spurious correlation, uh, and one where you need good evidence of the causal chain. And this explains why if you want to get a a drug uh, through uh, pharmaceutical approvals in an advanced country, you basically have to show evidence from a randomised trial. Uh, But they're much rarer in areas such as education policy, social policy, crime policy, or indeed uh, rarer in business.
0: Hmm. Well, so you're a politician, uh, part of the Australian government. Do you feel like when you look around at your colleagues or even sort of politicians across the world – Do you feel like uh, politicians are open to the kind of evidence uh, that might result from randomized trials Um, or do you feel like most people start with a, a dogma? You know, this is what I believe and I don't really care what the evidence tells me. This is what I believe. We've all got our presuppositions, right. but
1: I think in the area of medicine, uh, there's a strong support for, uh, for randomized trials. You know, most of us would not want to put our grandmother uh, onto a cancer treatment which had shown to fail a randomized trial. Uh, and in other areas, I think uh, high-quality evidence from randomised trials also has the advantage of uh, simplicity. Uh, I can explain a randomised trial to my uncle in a way I can't explain some of the other econometric techniques that I might have employed in my uh, my former profession of uh, mm-hmm. being an economics professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a sort of simplicity, a cleanliness, a kind of uh, you can you can see my hands kind of uh, kind of mm-hmm. aspect to them, which uh, which I think is quite compelling if you're in a political discourse. Mm.
0: Okay, so. And let's talk about a couple of trials that you write about that I think are interesting in terms of their implications, in terms of politics and public policy. And one uh, takes place in the 90s um, in Los Angeles. And there's this question about does simply changing your zip code, basically, if you live in a poor neighborhood or a rich neighborhood, does that change your outcome and life? And so some poor families are taken and put in these richer zip codes, and then they're followed. Like, what happens to them? What happens to their kids? Does it change anything?
1: So this is the Moving to Opportunity Study, uh, five cities, including Los Angeles. The study is looking at uh, what happens if uh, families are given a housing voucher that allows them to move to a low-poverty neighbourhood. Right. Uh, and what's striking about it, Cara, is that early on, most of the research uh, seems to suggest fairly disappointing effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, not big impacts on uh, on employment, not big impacts on children children's outcomes or risky behaviours, a little bit on mental health, largely because people are moving to low crime neighborhoods uh, but it didn't look like there was a massive payoff
0: and let me just insert what I remember is that for girls like if you had a, a you know children that were girls girls tended to be slightly helped like early on mm, and boys mm. engaged in more risky behavior if they moved to richer areas which is like not what you'd think but early on that's what was happening.
1: Exactly. And part of the problem seemed to be that the researchers were inadvertently combining the outcomes for all of the children. Uh, and it wasn't until a, a group of researchers in 2015 did two things. First of all, they matched up the outcomes for the, the children who families had moved to taxation data, and so they were able to get very precise outcome measures over a long period. Uh, and secondly, they looked at the age at which the children moved. Uh, and they found that uh, if you're an under 13 who moved to a low poverty na- neighbourhood, uh, then you're lifetime earnings seem to be about a third higher mm. so it looks like there's a there's an earnings boost something in the order of around three hundred thousand dollars for each of these preteen children that moves from a high poverty to a low poverty neighborhood that's a massive impact a life-changing impact uh, indeed it's such a big effect that you don't even need to place any uh, social weight on the outcomes of the children themselves uh, just you know, the government gets a good deal in terms of paying for housing vouchers and getting more money back through taxation to say nothing of the uh, the terrific outcomes for hmm. the kids so it seems like moving uh, moving families, low poverty neighborhoods when their children are young really does have a significant effect. Uh, and this is one of those fascinating moments of big data meets uh, randomized trials, uh, and we learn a whole lot more about the world.
0: And so you're saying these kids go on to make so much more money by being put in a this sort of more high-income neighborhood that what the government makes back in taxes just by taxing that extra income... More than pays for the housing voucher that they had spent to get them to the high-income neighborhood. Precisely. Okay. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Andrew Lee, a member of Australia's parliament. He's also the author of the new book, Randomistas. So let's talk a little bit about how randomized trials affect our everyday life. Uh, Just give me a sense of the way in which, you know, as I go through life – What things that I touch, do in a normal day have been affected by randomized trials?
1: Well, if you uh, use the internet today, you've probably been part of a randomized trial. Google is, uh, is constantly conducting randomized trials. And indeed, the number of search results that turn up, the color of the Google search bar, all optimised through randomised trials, which Google to uh, anticipates have added uh, millions of dollars to their bottom line. Hmm. Uh, if you uh, go into uh, a supermarket, then uh, you're probably part of randomised trials, uh, both in terms of shelf placement and also in terms of uh, pricing. Uh, if you're wondering why about uh, half of all published prices end with the number nine, uh, you can <laughs> thank Marketing Randomised Trials for that. Right. CVS did this uh, fascinating study a, a couple of years back in which it uh, Randomly ended promotions in half of its stores to see whether promotions were uh, were paying off. Uh, there's uh, were they? there's been other uh, no, there weren't. So okay. uh, yeah, they can't they, they can't they cancelled the promotions. So okay. uh, uh, you'll have to blame the randomesters if you liked okay. your uh, your CVS promotions at the time. Uh, Humana, Chrysler, United Airlines, uh, a whole lot of firms are uh, are constantly tweaking and experimenting. One expert says that every pixel on the Amazon homepage has had to justify its existence
0: through (laughs) a randomized trial. Um, You have actually written about how this idea of randomized trials, we started talking about scurvy, really comes out of trying to figure out what is good for your health, what isn't, what remedies work, what don't. But in what ways... Have you changed your sort of daily life and like your approach to health through the results of randomized trials that you've seen?
1: Yeah, I used to take a daily multivitamin tablet uh, and then I read a uh, review of uh, the studies on on multivitamins suggesting that uh, supplements of vitamins A, C and E didn't do anything for healthy people. So I've stopped taking my daily multivitamin tablets. Um, Similarly, for my daily fish oil tablet, uh, I think fish is good for you. I'm less persuaded that uh, fish oil tablets are good based on the randomized trials. So I've dropped that as well. Uh, I'm a marathon runner, and so uh, I, uh, I follow the results of a randomized trial which showed that uh, compression socks aid recovery. So uh, uh, after completing a, a big marathon, I'll wear compression socks for a couple of weeks afterwards. Uh, mm. And, uh, you know, you just keep on uh, look at, looking at, uh, at opportunities as to where you can t- hone your own your, your, what, you're, what you're doing in your own life. Uh, the subtitle of my book was chosen based on a randomized trial we did on Google. <laughs> that, uh, uh took an hour and cost about $50 and uh, really? produ- uh, allowed us to test the various titles
0: uh, that, uh, that my editors and I had thought might work. Oh, so I should say the subtitle is How Radical Researchers Are Changing Our World. And by the way, can you just set up a randomized trial on Google for, what did you say, $50 to figure out your subtitle, your book subtitle?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Really? So we had a, a an ad running. Uh the uh, the ad had the various titles of of books that we thought. Um the the worst performing title, I have to say, Random How a Powerful Tool Changed Our World. Uh, not a single person clicked on that title. Really? Uh, and uh, the highest click through was uh, was the one that Yale University Press's gone with, uh How Radical Researchers Are Changing Our World.
0: Are there um Randomized trials, you know, you, you talked about vitamins and fish oil. Are there results of randomized trials that you think are not well known in the public? But are there a couple things you'd like to tell people about that, like, we should pay more attention to um, in the world today?
1: Yeah, so surgery is one of the things that uh, that I was comp- had my eyes completely opened on on uh, writing this book. Uh, the surgery traditionally has been uh, a craft which has been averse to the sort of rigorous testing of interventions that medicine has put drugs to. Uh, But recently, uh, uh, surgeons have been much more open to doing what's called sham surgery, Mm -hmm. uh, in which patients consent to either having the regular operation done on them or else to being sliced open uh, and sewn back up again without the operation being performed.
0: It's hard to imagine signing up for that. Just open me up. Don't do any... I guess you don't know. You don't know whether you had the surgery or not.
1: Exactly. You don't know. And the surgeon doesn't even know until the moment they walk into the operating theater. So they can't treat you differently in the prep phase. Okay, But uh, the consent is rigorous. There's ethical evaluations. Uh, But the results have been striking. Uh, One study of uh, 50 sham surgery trials uh, found that in about half the cases, uh, the real surgery did not outperform the sham surgery. (laughs) And we're talking about Operations that are performed millions of times a year uh, around the world. Uh, Knee surgery, shoulder surgery, uh, meniscectomies. You know, this is big and important stuff given how how much we spend on healthcare. We really need to know whether these surgeries work. And then how how best to make them work. So there's randomized trials of robotic surgery. There's randomized trials that would look, for example, with a hip replacement. Is it better to make the incision coming in from the front or the side or the back? Is it better to use one kind of uh, uh, surgical technique than another? All these things are being rigorously tested, and uh, patients are the better for it.
0: Hmm. Give me a sense of some of – I mean, we've talked about a lot of things that um, randomized trials can tell you. What are some of the downsides, if you see any, to doing these kinds of trials?
1: You need to be absolutely solid on the ethical uh, dimension. So, for example, Facebook did an emotional manipulation experiment some years back in which they randomly changed the emotional content of users' feeds in order to uh, answer the uh fascinating and important psychological question uh, as to whether seeing more positive information in your friends' feeds made you more positive or more negative. Uh, And it turned out you followed the emotions of your friends. Uh, So interesting results psychologically, uh, but they hadn't warned users of it and they hadn't uh, compensated them in any way. Uh, I'm all for uh, Facebook setting up a, uh, a panel of its users who've agreed to, ke- to be part of interesting psychological studies, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think they should have done this experiment on users without their consent. Mm-hmm. Um, we also need to ma- make sure that there is rigorous oversight and that the experiment is uh, stopped if it looks as though it's doing harm. Uh, or indeed, sometimes uh, experiments are stopped in the medical literature because the established procedure it turns out to be much worse than the, uh, the than the control group.
0: I wonder if, like in the case of some of those surgeries where people were just getting cut open and sewed back up, um, but they are actually weren't getting the surgery, they were kind of the control group. Mm. I wonder if going into that, medical researchers thought, these people are really getting a raw deal. Like some people are getting knee replacements and other people are getting nothing. They're getting an incision in their knee and nothing else. I just wonder if, you know, there's ever times when people have these kind of qualms about, gee, we're giving these people so much of a better deal than these people.
1: Yeah, well, but you only have to uh, look at, uh, for example, the uh, the drug thalidomide, which was uh, mm-hmm. was given out to pregnant women in order to deal with dealing with morning sickness, and turned out to be doing terrible damage right. to uh, to babies
0: in the nineteen fifties. Right? It was month- exactly, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, And there, you would very much have wanted to be part of the control group, not the tra- mm-hmm. treatment group. Right. Uh, we've got social uh, social policy interventions such as scared straight, in which youths uh, are put in jail for a day in order to uh, reduce the chance they'll offend. Uh, scared straight turned out to increase offending rates. And again, there, you'd want to be in the control group rather right. than the treatment group. Right. Yeah. The very fact we're doing the randomized trial is because we don't know whether it's better to be in the treatment or the control group. And and there are countless moments where it's
0: actually better not to get the treatment. Mm-hmm. Andrew Lee is the author of the new book, Randomistas. He's also a member of the Australian Parliament. Andrew, thank you so much. This is great.
1: Thank you, Kara. Great to be with you.
0: We'll have an article about the Moving to Opportunity Study, where the government moved low-income families into higher-income areas. You'll find it on our website, innovationhub.org. One summer, 160 years ago, Charles Darwin sat agonizing over a letter he'd gotten from Singapore. For decades, Darwin had been working on a theory, a theory that the scholar Ian McCallman has called his dangerous secret. The secret, he worried, would get him in trouble with religious figures, the public, and who knows who else. It was, of course, the theory of evolution, that living things are naturally selected for and change over time, which contradicted the idea that God created everything exactly the way he wanted it, all at once. But when Darwin received that letter from Singapore 160 years ago, he hadn't published any of those groundbreaking ideas. The letter was from a man named Alfred Russell Wallace. Darwin had likely corresponded with Wallace before when he needed to know something about a very particular duck that Wallace may have seen in his travels. But now, as Darwin read the letter, he realized with horror that Wallace had stumbled on the idea of natural selection. And Wallace wanted to know, what did Darwin think? What Darwin thought was that he had been scooped. Ian McCallum writes about this agonizing time in the scientist's life and what he did with that letter. In the book, Darwin's Armada, Four Voyages and the Battle for the Theory of Evolution, he's a professor in the history department at the University of Sydney. Ian, welcome.
2: Well, thank you very much, Claire.
0: So take us back to that letter that Darwin got 160 years ago and talk a little bit about um this concern when Darwin opened it and realized, oh my gosh, this theory I've been working on for decades, somebody else has come up with it.
2: That's right. Look, it's hard to exaggerate just how shattering an experience it was. He'd been working on the theory for 20 years and he was trying to write an absolutely exhaustive book. I mean, the book, if he'd written it as he intended, would have not come out uh, for another 20 years. In fact, it might, might have made his whole lifetime. He wanted it to Mm. be exhaustive. And then this tiny little, this letter with just a few pages from over in Asia by a man with no scientific qualifications whatsoever Mm. produced the same theories, absolutely shattering.
0: So who was uh, Alfred Russell Wallace and why did he come up with basically the theory of natural selection before Darwin had a chance to publish it?
2: Well, Alfred Wallace was a really humble man, actually completely working class in his background and experience. And he'd been working, essentially going to different countries, uh, collecting specimens for very small amounts of money and sending them back to the United Kingdom. That's how he made his living. But he was uh, a self-taught person. He read voraciously and very clever, in you know, instinctively clever. And he had through completely different series of experiences, come up with the same idea. I mean funnily enough he came up with it while he had malaria. He it it suddenly came to him. Mm. And he wrote to him in all humility, not saying, look, I've come up with something really clever, but what what do you think of this crazy idea of mine?
0: Mm. So uh, before we get to what Darwin actually did with this letter, why was he so slow and so hesitant to release this theory that he'd been working on for decades? I just wonder if you think that he kind of, like, worried about the ramifications, um, that he would upend things, and not just science, even beyond that, that he would upend uh, culture, too.
2: Oh, yes. He, he He was really a very... A gentle and reclusive man. Um, He hated uh, controversy and publicity. You know, he spent a reclusive life, a very strong sort of family man, and worked enormously hard. But uh, out in his house in South Down, the implications of evolution he really did understand not only that it would reverberate through religion it would reverberate through how people thought of societies how how they thought of human beings he he understood perfectly well and later wrote about the the kind of uh, controversy that would you know would arise from believing that human beings were derived from an animal strain you know
0: and and he was married I think to a devoutly religious woman,
2: he was indeed, and he was conscious of, of not hurting her. It was a very good and loving marriage, but nevertheless, she had given him the go-ahead. If you like, you go ahead and and say what you believe. You know, he, she was never going to stand in his way. So really, again, I think the idea that he, didn't want to publish because it would hurt Emma is, in fact, a, another exaggeration. They had a perfectly uh, a good understanding together mm. about this. Mm. Mm.
0: Okay, so let's go back to 1858, 160 years ago. He gets this letter from Alfred Wallace, and it basically says, I'm kind of, I figured out your theory. Of, of course, Wallace didn't know it was Darwin's theory, but Darwin starts to worry that he's been scooped. Um, He could have buried this letter. He could have burned this letter. He could have shown it to nobody. That is not what he did. What did he do?
2: That's exactly right. He writes to his closest friends, two or three of them, and says, look what's happened. I'm, I'm finished, really, as a scientist. This is my whole life. And his friends were absolutely mortified. And most of his friends were pretty powerful scientists what they did was um, they rallied around and they found some things that he had written, which um, they were, you know, kind of extensive letters, for example, that he'd written to a scientist in America, other kinds of things. And they, they cobbled together a version of natural selection and then they suggested that these be um, read out simultaneously in the uh, Royal Society, and, and that they would then be simultaneous publications. It would be seen to be a theory that had been produced simultaneously.
0: Right, by, by Darwin and Wallace. They just had sort of independently come up with this idea, yeah. the same idea.
2: Meantime, just to get clear to you, Wallace yeah. had no idea any of this was happening. He's mm-hmm. way out, out in the bush where he'll be for another eight years in Asia, Wow. he has no idea that any of this is happening.
0: And so how did Darwin... I mean, his friends, in in a very friendly way, were putting tremendous pressure on him to say, like, you know that book you're going to write someday about evolution and natural selection? You need to, like, write it now or write a paper or write something. You need to get something out the door. Um. How did he respond to that kind of pressure?
2: He responded like a maniac. (laughs) He absolutely (laughs) believed them. And so he wrote what he described as what was to be a kind of summary. Um, And that summary he wrote, as I describe it, in white heat. Uh, It is not his custom, um, but he sat down and wrote it just bang like that. And it's a substantial book, as you know, uh, on the origin of species. But that is the summary of what he was doing. Mm -hmm. His actual book would have been, you know, 10 or 20 times longer than that.
0: I love that he's under a lot of pressure. He has to produce something and he just, you know, comes up with on the origin of species because... As you do when you're when you're in a hurry,
2: it's true. I mean, think about it. Uh, He'd been thinking about it so long, and really, he had the problem of knowing too much, actually you know, the the problem of, of trying to be exhaustive. It's a kind of theory that you can't prove in by experiment because it takes too long. Evolution mm-hmm. takes hundreds and hundreds of years, so you can't show evolution by experiment. So what you have to do is you have to show it kind of inductively, as they say, by the enormous number of, of incidents and events that seem to point in that direction.
0: Right, right. So he's amassing all these examples of like, Absolutely. this little bird, that it yes. looks like this in this place and this little bird looks like this on That's this right. island and so on and so forth, right?
2: Hence the letter for, about the duck to Wallace, yeah, one exactly. of thousands of letters that he sent out mm. all over the world to try and get the, the, all these facts.
0: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to Ian McAlmon, a historian and author of Darwin's Armada: Four Voyages and the Battle for the Theory of Evolution. So, Origin of Species is published um, in 1859. What was like the immediate uh, response like? Was this big news in society? Just give me a sense.
2: Well, it, was, um, it wasn't really big news in society, but it was big news in the world of science, including Wallace But when he comes back. Wallace, by the way, you know, had he, had he been a kind of uh, egotistical man, he could easily have been very put out. I mean, they published mm-hmm. him without asking him and they didn't publish him straight away. They delayed and got, uh, you know, put together a version for darwin so as to make it a joint publication so you know but wallace was one of the humblest nicest most decent human beings you could ever come across and he was just simply thrilled uh, didn't see himself in the same league as darwin he never he never did till the end of his days and uh, Anyway, but he gathered these young disciples and my book really argues that these young disciples had been blooded, if you like. They'd learnt um, about their science in, also on voyages to Australia, voyages to the Southern Hemisphere like Darwin. Mm-hmm. And they were a group to get, who, who were ready, especially Thomas Huxley who later became known as Darwin's bulldog. He was an aggressive, uh, articulate, he was a fighter, and darwin needed those people because as a, as i was saying to you you know he was a recluse a very gentle right. man he just couldn't cope so really what he did once the book was out was to let his disciples do the fighting
0: so in let's the 1860s and the 1870s when the book had was was relatively new and came out in 1859 i mean you talk about this idea of like a war and people being bulldogs. What was the, what were they fighting against? And give me a sense of like what that opposition looked like.
2: Well, the, the major opposition comes from within the scientific world. I mean, it's people like Richard Owen, whose own theories have been knocked aside, you know, so they mm. were furious and there were, they wrote very nasty reviews of him. Um, there were controversies in the newspaper. I mean, particularly the idea that's implicit in the origin, although never, ever mentioned in the origin, that m- man might be derived in some way from a line of animals that included apes. That mm-hmm. became the kind of thing that was caricatured in the newspapers, you could imagine. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I want to argue a, a sort of strange argument, really, is that by the end of of the 70s darwin's theory of evolution was very largely accepted in britain including really? in the church
0: so you're talking like 15 20 years after he writes it yep people believe it and yes. including in the church yes
2: in the church the okay, anglican okay. church in particular leading figures in the anglican church had assimilated it it didn't they didn't deny what they simply argued was that the process, the origin of species, that process of evolution had been devised by God Mm -hmm. and that that the Bible was more emblematic. The funny thing is that the real hard anti-Darwinist stuff occurs first of all in America more than anywhere else and secondly it takes shape rather later. Um, evangelicals get hold of it. Uh, fundamentalists get hold of it, and then it it enters politics. People start using darwin 's theory to make political uh, mm. arguments, which he himself abhorred um, and so really the the thing hardens uh, so you know by the nineties um, you would say there was more international um resistance to it than there had been. Immediately. Mm. It's kind of a paradox.
0: Mm. Certainly in um popular memory, it's Darwin's name that survives. Um, and not Alfred Russell Wallace, no. even though they really both came up with this idea, although maybe at different, you know, sort of magnitudes. Um why do you think it is that, you know, Darwin is the name we remember and not as much Wallace?
2: Well, there's two reasons. I mean, there's good and bad reasons, really. The good reason is that there's no question about it that Darwin had done the prodigious amount of work to make the theory stand. Uh, Wallace's little letter scribbled, it it outlined it perfectly. It was like an almost perfect summary, but he didn't have 20 years of evidence um, behind him to, to make it really stand up and he hadn't written a book like The Origin of Species, although he subsequently wrote lots of books in defence of Darwin. But the main reason was that, that he was a humble working class man. And uh, Darwin was a, from a very aristocratic um, and wealthy, so we would say middle class family, made their money. Wedgwood was one of his uncles. Okay. Um, and so they were a very well pottery. Yeah, is, the pottery of yes. Wedgwood. And he was a, a person in high social esteem. And I think uh, Wallace was just, Wallace was not. I mean, he remained a humble man. In fact, one of the last things I write in my book was that, that Wallace was so poor that Darwin managed to get a pension for him and his wife and kids so mm. that he could survive. Um And he's literally forgotten today. Uh, I think it's very sad because he is actually a very significant figure for someone like me who now runs an environmental institute because he had uh, lots of other achievements, Wallace, including perhaps becoming one of the greatest founders of what we now call biogeography. but um, he's a lost figure in history. <laughs>
0: Ian McCallum is the author of Darwin's Armada, Four Voyages and the Battle for the Theory of Evolution. He's also a professor in the History Department at the University of Sydney. Ian, thank you so much.
2: It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for your lovely interview. <music>
0: wondering, by the way, what the prevailing scientific theory on how animals and plants came to be before Darwin and Wallace published their ideas, McAlvin says that many scientists believed there were multiple creations done by a divine hand. And that yes, sometimes differences between different groups of animals would spring up, but those differences were not permanent, and that the animals would eventually revert back to their original form. We will have more about Darwin's world on our website, innovationhub.com. Almost everyone at one time or another has questioned their productivity. And those questions often go something like, how did I just waste an hour reading Wikipedia articles? Or how could it possibly be that I chatted away the 20 minutes I was going to use to work on a project? The nice thing is researchers are on top of our productivity crisis.
3: I think it's something that we all kind of identify with. Gabriella Tonietto is an assistant professor of marketing at Rutgers
0: Business School. She researches how we use our time. And like pretty much everybody else, she procrastinates.
3: But in my own experience, it came down to really when am I willing to tackle those really big, important things that take a good chunk of time as opposed to kind of spending the time that I have doing those more minor tasks like answering those quick emails that really could have waited for later. So I end up taking advantage of the time, but only for those less important, less productive tasks as opposed to, you know, the stuff that really matters.
0: So let's imagine you have 30 minutes on your hands and a big project you really should start. But you've got only 30 minutes. And remember, the project's substantial. So you go pick some lower hanging fruit. You delete junk emails, which offers a nice feeling of accomplishment. You get a cup of coffee. You check in on a website you wanted to check in on anyway.
3: And I kind of had the realization that when I have something coming up that's looming and has this sort of concrete time that I start to actually feel less capable of tackling tasks even in the exact same amount of time. So something that I know is gonna take me 45 minutes, if I have an hour, I'm likely to do, but I become less likely to actually try to take that on when it's an hour before, say, getting a drink with a friend or a meeting that I have scheduled or maybe even scheduling this interview, right?
0: But Tony feeling that the next thing on your schedule could be hanging over your head, stopping you from being productive right now, it was just a feeling. She wanted to test it. And she did that in a few different ways. One part of her research involved telling people that they could participate in a 45 minute study or a 30 minute study. The 45 minute study would pay more if you signed up to do it. And everyone she asked had an hour of free time. But here's the twist. Some people had a task scheduled right after that free hour. Some did not. Turns out the people who had a task scheduled right after their free hour were less likely to do the 45-minute study, even though there was a financial benefit to doing it. It seemed to the researchers like just having something ahead was taking up people's mental space, making them uncomfortable about scheduling anything too close to it, even if there was a financial benefit to that kind of close scheduling. But meetings and other tasks sometimes involve mental prep. Tonietto wondered, in non-work settings, do objects in the future appear closer than they really are? So her research team headed for the airport. And they asked people who are sitting around waiting for their flights whether they'd do a 15-minute survey to help a student with their thesis.
3: So if we were in the half an hour before your boarding time, when you're just, you know, sitting at the gate kind of waiting to board a plane... People were less likely to help that student and complete a a 15-minute study if that half an hour was right up against their boarding time as opposed to a little bit separate from it.
0: So if their boarding time was in a half an hour, like there was no question that if they filled out that survey, they'd get on the plane. They still didn't want to do it because it it, kind of like the two rubbed up against each other and that somehow made them uncomfortable.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think it makes people uncomfortable with the idea that they could actually complete it no problem.
0: In general, Tonietto says, things that are ahead, from boarding planes to having meetings, take up too much of our
3: mind space and essentially trick us. And that mere distraction and focus on the upcoming task itself could be enough to actually make us feel like it's looming nearer to us in time. So it just feels really close, and we start actually feeling like that time is somehow less. Tony Eddo
0: advises that if you can, clump your meetings together and clump your free time together so your day isn't a checkerboard of meetings. But, to be honest, that's not a luxury that most people have. And there are days when you've got meetings at 9, 11, 1, and 3. Is there any way to have that kind of schedule and get more done than you're getting done now?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the unfortunate truth is that scheduling is usually a coordinating practice, right? So we're generally not going to have perfect control over it. Uh, So one thing uh, that we do find is that... the easier it is to break something into subtasks the more likely we are to at least start. So if you have a big task that you would really want to tackle but all you have is time that is bounded by these scheduled tasks then one recommendation is to think about taking that task you want to get done and breaking it up into meaningful subtasks because at least one or more of those subtasks will still feel accomplishable even if The entirety of the task doesn't feel accomplishable to you during that time. Hmm. And that's a good tactic for at least getting underway because the biggest hurdle really is getting started.
0: And that's smart in some ways because, as you say, like people underestimate, you know, what they can do in an hour before the upcoming meeting. And so if you're doing an outline of the memo that you have to write and then maybe just like the first paragraph, it may be that if you do chunk by chunk, you realize you can get a lot more done than before that meeting than you had imagined that you could.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Do you think um, in terms of awareness, like do you think businesses are aware of this? I mean, obviously, what they really want is productive workers. And if the way that the schedules are within that business Uh, really hinder people from being productive, you might think that businesses would care about that, even not as a happiness issue, um, but simply as a bottom line issue. Do you have any sense that like there are businesses that have
3: heard what you're saying, that have read your research? So I haven't spoken with many. In a very early life of this, um, I spoke with, you know, people, for example, at the St. Louis Zoo, uh, as well as the St. Louis Arch, who were interested in it from a different perspective, not a productivity perspective, but more from a consumer perspective, mm-hmm. because um, I just conducted a, like, a very brief interview with you know a couple of people at each of these to get an idea as to whether this is something of potential interest to them. And something that I was told was that they can't figure out why people line up so early. And I think that this research actually provides one reason why that might be the case. So, you know, you go to the arch and the way it works is you you buy a ticket and then you have a specific, you know, time range that you, or, or time that you can then go up in this little elevator, right, and see the top of the arch. And they do it in big batches. So it might be 50 people or whatever it is that go up in a batch spend some time at the top of the arch and, and come down. So there's not really much of an incentive to be first in line because then actually you have a bunch of people who are kind of vying behind you to get a good view. Mm -hmm. There's, if anything, kind of an incentive to be at the end. What they found was that people were lining up 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes even before their time. And it would cause things like bottlenecks or blocking the people who actually had earlier ticketed times. Mm -hmm. So it can be a salient issue for some businesses And I think one of the reasons for that is even though you have this unit of time, you feel like, "Eh, well, it's not really much time. I can't really do anything during it, so I'll just get in line and wait. Does
0: this research, this specifically, but also all the other work you've done and colleagues have done, you know, we hear so often people say that they're so busy nowadays that they don't have time to do this or that or the other thing. Does doing this research make you question, in fact, how busy people really are and <laughs> and wonder if it's, in in fact, the perception of busyness rather than, like, actual busyness?
3: Absolutely. So there is some evidence to show that we're, in many ways, we're not actually busier, but we feel a lot busier. And something that I have jokingly fired back on is like, yeah, well, we're so busy on Twitter and Facebook and, you know looking around at different social media or, you know, Wikipedia or YouTube or whatever it might be. And kind of thinking about these times is, people absolutely say that, if only I had some free time. And what this research shows is, well, maybe not quite necessarily, because when you do get free time, it's not a guarantee that you'll take advantage of it, which implies that maybe you have a little bit more flexibility than you realized.
0: Gabriella Tonietto is an assistant professor of marketing at Rutgers Business School. Gabby, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. If
3: you're lost, you, can look and you will find me. Time after time. If you fall, I will catch you. I'll be
2: waiting.
0: If you want to know more about Gabriella Tonietto's study on how and why we get preoccupied with future obligations, we'll have a link to it on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also got production help from Wen Lei and Asil Kibbe. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.
3: PRI, Public Radio International.